giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello and welcome to the giant robot smashing into other giant robots podcast. I am not your normal host. I'm Chad Pytel. And today I'm turning the tables on our normal host, Benjamin Orenstein, and asking him some questions. Hey, Ben. Woo! Hello. I am excited. Uh, hopefully I do uh, anywhere near a good uh, job interviewing you as you interview our guests. Mm. Um, you set the bar very high. So. Oh, thank you. I, this is this is a nice podcast for me because it required no prep time for the first in like 84 podcasts. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, so what do you do to prep for the podcast? Hmm. Um, I try to show up knowing a decent amount about the guest already. Uh, so when I'm asking questions, it's rarely to sort of gather general biographical data. It's more like, I think there's probably an interesting answer here. Um, I think it makes the guests feel a little flattered as well. And it's like nice to have a, a familiarity with their work. So I sort of, I start by Googling them. If they have a Twitter feed, I check out what they've been talking about for the last few weeks. Um, I look if they're active on GitHub, if they're a programmer type, uh, if they have been blogging, I try to read at least a handful of their last, uh, blog posts, pretty much anything they've published on the internet. I want to at least have passing familiarity with some people have talks online, which is great too, because I'll sort of skim that and, and see what they're into and what their presenting style is like. I think it was, is it James Lipton? The, the guy Inside the he says studio. never that you never ask a question you don't already know the answer to mm-hmm. when doing interviews. That's one of his techniques. Uh huh. That could also have been a parody of him that I'm just remembering. <laughs> that could be. I, I definitely am asked. Sometimes I ask questions I don't to which I don't know the answer. Um, but I sometimes I'm asking leading questions because I think the answer is going to be cool. Right. So was sticking on the podcast for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you participate somewhat in the scheduling and and all that uh stuff um other people do that other people do the recording and the editing and you participate in that process um but you really are focused on the on the interviewing and uh how does that how does that feel um i like it i'm happy to be the dumb talent that doesn't really know how the rest of the thing works um, so you, I remember you approached me back when we started this, um, cause you were like, we're thinking about starting a podcast. Uh, we think you might be good at hosting it. What do you think? And at first to me, I thought that meant I was going to be like tracking down guests and doing the editing and all that. And I was kind of not that psyched about that idea. And you're like, no, 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 you just, you just show up and record it. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. that I'm into. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the additional work is not as much my, uh, not as much, doesn't interest me as much. I, I like talking to the guests. Yeah. So I feel okay being disconnected from it. And everyone else does a good job. Like we've always um, outsourced that or, or delegated that to people that know what they're doing. So I'm, I'm okay with it. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Except for when you were producing it. That was a little bit of a mess. <laughs> it was very iffy. We needed yeah. adult supervision, but fortunately we hired somebody after a while. Um, so, right. Maybe that's all we'll talk about the podcast. Uh, maybe, maybe it is. <laughs> maybe. Maybe I'll force us back there. Yeah. I'm the guest now. I can control the flow. So how did you get started with programming? Mm. Take, um, us, take us back to yeah. a young Benjamin Orenstein. Yeah. Um, I got... So I had I had um, fooled around with like Gorilla.Base, like the, the QBasic programs and, what, and uh, really, really simple stuff. But I, I got my real start when I was um, a senior in high school. So I had moved during high school... And for whatever reason, the, the classes I had taken in my previous school put me more or less a year ahead of my peers at my new school, just by sort of uh, happenstance. And so I reached my senior year, and I'd actually finished all of my requirements to graduate. And so I had a guidance counselor suggest that I do what was called, or what I think still is called, dual enrollment. So I actually went to uh, UMass Lowell for a year as my senior year of college, doing a full, or sorry, senior year of high school, doing a full course load there. Um, and I had an incredible professor, uh, Dr. James Canning, who ran the like computing 101 course, which is like, you know, this is your first CS computer science course. Um, and I really liked him because like the first I had never been an amazing student. I'd never been like a particularly motivated student. And I went into his class and sat down and there were 300 people in the lecture hall. And he said, this is one of the hardest classes on campus. He said, uh, about 70 of you will finish this class. I'm probably going to lose about 100 of you after this lecture alone. Uh, and uh, I give out at most one or two A's per semester. So if you are not ready ready to work hard, and you're one of those people that hates not getting A's, this is a terrible class for you. And <laughs> indeed, like 50 people dropped after that lecture. Um, but I was like totally uh, motivated by that. 
And so he handed out in the first day a stack of, a, a, a stack of paper that was 110 programming challenges that went from incredibly basic all the way up to uh, fairly involved. Uh, and the class was taught in C. Uh, and I, this, like, that throwdown of, like, you probably can't get an A in this course was, like, more motivating to me than anything I'd ever experienced in my academic career. And so um, I started tackling the problem sets, and he was an awesome lecturer. And that was, like, really what showed me that I, I could love doing this mm-hmm. thing. Now, you realize it will be a perfect ending in this story if you then went on to get an A in the class. Uh, I actually did get an A. <laughs> oh. I did get an A. And one of, the, one of my proudest moments was we took the first uh, midterm or the first sort of exam that he gave. Uh, and he saw me in the hallway and he stopped and he shook my hand and said, you got 100. And I was like, yeah. I was oh, like, man. And this guy was like my hero. So like the fact that he knew me and recognized that that was my test and like uh, I did well, I was really psyched. So this isn't about me, but I, I, I'm learning new things about you. I didn't realize that you did dual enrollment. I did too my senior year, oh. uh, but just for CS. So my school didn't have any CS classes. Mm-hmm. And so in Massachusetts, you had the option. If, if you don't have classes in a subject you want to take, you can dual enroll in order to take them. Okay. And so that's what I did mm-hmm. and took a class in C, intro to C programming and the professor again was very inspiring. We called him the human compiler <laughs> because he could look at our a lot of the course was just written on paper. Hmm. Yep. We didn't do it at computers. Hmm. And he could had look computers at, not been invented when you were computers had not been invented. Around. It was an amazing, amazing course. Yeah. I don't know how they even knew that there would be <laughs> such things as computers. Sure. Uh, but he would look at printouts or um or what we had written and just be able to to tell us what the problems were yeah it was it was interesting to me how uh in like contagious that enthusiasm for the course was mm-hmm. because like i said i was never much of a student never super motivated about it but then like because i was so psyched up for that class it ended up i was ended up infecting the other classes i was doing it's like i had like these really amazing grades when i was doing dual enrollment that were whereas before i had been sort of middling um and it was it was awesome to me to have a professor with that level of inspiration i'd never really experienced that before yeah and also see it was cool to like start off with the something really close to the metal. I didn't know that at the time, mm-hmm. but it was it's nice to have that knowledge kind of in the back of my head of how these things work at a slightly lower level. Right. So is that when you decided to what you were going to go to school for? I decided that about ten years before then. <laughs> um, I, my dad was uh, involved in the high tech industry. He was in sales, but he was like selling like microchips to like IBM and things like that. And so he brought home a an eighty eighty six computer when I was pretty young. And I have never fallen in love with something so quickly. Uh, I was just like instantly smitten. I was like, this is the best thing ever. All I want to do is this thing. And so I had been, I had my eye on computer science for quite some time before that. Yeah. So you then went on to computer science. Where did you go to school? I went to UMass Amherst um, for a a period of time. Uh, I never didn't, I did not end up graduating. Uh, I was, I think I was a great example of someone who should have taken some time off before school. So I had that good experience at UMass Lowell. It somehow didn't transfer once I got like out of the house. Yeah. Um, not a lot of maturity. And as I said, like I wasn't a great student in high school. So then like I got to UMass Lowell and I started as a, or sorry, UMass Amherst and I started as a sophomore. And so like, that's where you hit all the nasty weeder classes, mm-hmm. like, uh, assembly language and compilers and, uh, uh, calc three and all these, like, I basically had a a nasty workload as my very first semester and i pretty much cratered i uh, didn't have the work habits to know to like to be able to tackle that much work at that level yeah i'm from right near there and there's a nickname for umass amherst do you uh-huh. know what it is is it zoomass yeah yeah it's yeah so i mean i w- i lived on the computer science floor okay so, so you- it was a little tamer than than mm-hmm. usual and like i'm i was not a, i guess i kind of was a partier i don't know um to me it was it wasn't so much that the distractions that were hurting me. It was a, a lack of good habits mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, a, a strong procrastination habit. And um, also, I used to get fairly overwhelmed with big projects. And that's probably where the procrastination came from. So they would hand out these things that were meant to be multi-week problem sets. And like every time I thought about starting, it would just like intimidate me. And so I would fail to start until you know, too late when the, the, the panic of not doing it over- overcame the panic of, I probably can't do this. Right. And then, you know, I'm trying to last minute all these things and not succeeding. Yeah. That was pretty common in my program, too. Uh, you'd end up in the lab the night before. Yeah. And pulling all-nighters. And the whole class was there, so it wasn't that bad. <laughs> yeah. At least it was <laughs> social. If, right. At least it was social. 
Um, so what happened now? So was deciding to, well, did you fail out or drop out? I failed out actually. Okay. They, I was dismissed for academic deficiency. Uh, and they said, let's see other people for a while. And so you can, after that, you basically have to take a, so it's a basically a forced semester off at which point you can reapply. Mm-hmm. Um, but I realized I was not in the place to reapply. So that was like pretty much actually rock bottom for me. That was when I went and, um, I went home, moved home and I got a job and I was working as a bartender at the Olive Garden. And I had like special non-slip shoes and a uniform and a name tag and like working for like an extremely corporate restaurant chain. Um, and it was like, it was terrible. I was very sad at that point. I was like fairly ashamed at what I had done. And um, I had like this moment of like my ex-girlfriend from high school, like came in and saw me here. I was like, what are you doing here? And I was like, <laughs> oh, just, you know, uh, doing some work, hanging out. And it was like terrible. Um, but it didn't last very long, fortunately. So I, I was, I kind of started digging myself out of the hole. Um, I got a better job. It was still at a restaurant, but it was like at a better restaurant. And then um, I finally, I had done some IT internships when I was in high school, like uh, doing network stuff. And so I managed to land an IT consulting job uh, after probably about six months after leaving or getting kicked out of school. Uh, and then turn that into my first programming job and then turn that into my first Rails job and then turn that into ThoughtBot. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was really painful and it was it sucked, but the trajectory was fairly consistently up. Um, so I just kind of had to hit that and experience the the pain, I think, to sort of reset my like, what do I care about? What's worth doing? How can I do it? Right. Have you ever felt like... Uh, beyond that initial slump, have you ever felt like not having a degree hurt you? Um, I don't think so. I'm very fortunate to have chosen the field that I did where it's sort of not an issue. I think mm-hmm. there are definitely some companies where they wouldn't talk to me because of the lack of degree. Um, but almost even all those companies now these days say like, you know, CS degree or equivalent work experience right. type thing. Um, and a lot of companies don't even care. Like, I, we didn't talk about my degree status at all. Well, you I, wrote a blog post about how we didn't even ask you for a resume. That's true, yeah. You didn't, I, not only did I not need a degree, I didn't need a resume. Um, it's, it was, you know, personal connections. I had done a Rails Rumble with Dan Croak, and I had, you know, a, a blog with a lot of stuff on it mm-hmm. and uh, a GitHub with some things on it, too. It's so easy, you know, it, it's much harder to get. You weren't, we don't hire entry-level people, I think, if you were trying to get an entry-level job here, just starting out, it'd be very hard. You'd have nothing to show. Right. But for us, it's so easy to look at what people have done or can do. Just say, sit down at this computer and yeah. do something. And it's very easy for us to not worry about degrees, not worry about resumes. Yeah, and I think that's a, actually a strength of our industry. Right. Like, and, and there are many other industries where the degree becomes proof that, of competency mm-hmm. when it really isn't. Right. Uh, so I, I'm, we're lucky in that way, I think. Right. I think that also translates to learning. So my wife is a material scientist. You know, working at home, she can't she can't do her actual work at home. Mm. We don't have a lab in our house with hoods and, you know, all this stuff. And so I think we're very inf- fortunate to be able to just crack open the laptop at home and, and do what you want. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. Because I decided I wanted to get into Rails. Um, mm-hmm. I was working at a, a company in this proprietary language, and I was very unhappy. Like I was happy to be writing software at least, but it was very much not the the right company or field for me. Uh, and I was able to, in my own time, teach myself Rails at home enough that I could sort of be fairly well spoken in an interview enough to to land a Rails job that was entry, admittedly entry level, but you know got me in the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's we're very lucky in a lot of ways in this field. I think. Be yeah. able to have such easy uh, evaluations of our work and also to be able to do it ourselves and have all the materials we need, learning materials and also like materials of production are easily available. Yeah. So when did you start in that progression? When did you start doing test driven development? Ooh, I had a test driven epiphany when I was. Um, oh, so I uh, I did fairly quickly go back to taking classes like online or part time because mm-hmm. uh, I was figured out why not to chip, chip away at the degree. Um, and so I was taking a compilers course uh, at UMass Boston this time in my effort to go to every single UMass uh, related <laughs> institution. Uh, and so that class was actually great. I learned a lot. And one of the, the best things I learned was he made us do not TDD, but he made us write tests. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was writing a compiler and a compiler is like a pipeline. 
where like you start with a program and you know the first thing you do is you parse it out into tokens and then you combine the token or you, you split it out into tokens you parse it together to figure out what it means then you generate the code and so there's this like fairly long involved pipeline with with a number of steps and I remember so distinctly writing these tests because we had to. We literally were graded on them, but like thinking, like I don't really get why we're doing this. And then one day I broke something. I, I changed something fairly early on in, in the compi- compilation process, probably in like the in the the lexer or the tokenizer. And then something way way down the pipeline broke, mm-hmm. and the test blew up. And I was like, why is this test suddenly failing? And I realized I had this like little error way way like further back in the, in the pipeline and i had this moment of like oh my god like this would have been broken for weeks mm-hmm. and it would have tripped me up so badly on something else entirely and i have no idea how this change got here or you know why it suddenly was not working and i had that moment of like oh my god this, this is the best idea ever and then i became pretty obsessed with the tests mm. so when you started learning rails then you started um with tdd right away <sighs> hmm. yes and no uh, when I was doing my very first, very first applications, no, right. Um, I knew I wanted tests, but like it was, it still felt too hard to mm-hmm. write tests in the beginning. I was still like fiddling with things and seeing what broke. Um, but pretty quickly, I, but I, I knew I wanted to go that way, so I started learning a little bit of testing on that. And then I was fortunate. My first Rails job, uh, they had a strong TDD yeah. environment. So I yeah, I learned the same way. It, it's in fact the way that we teach Rails is just to focus on Rails. Mm-hmm. and then learn testing you have too much to learn up front it's it's very intimidating yeah absolutely so i learned the same way mm-hmm. um learned at thoughtbot actually uh, you know because we thoughtbot had already existed before rails mm. um so then along that progression when did you uh pick up vim uh, i actually picked up vim during that same compilers course mm-hmm. uh, i had a good friend who is like one of those he doesn't technically have a neck beard but he's really good in the shell kind of guys. Uh, and he was a heavy Vim user. Um, and uh, his name is Stu Powers. Uh, and he was like, you should try out Vim. And I was like, uh, I don't know. I got this Eclipse thing over here and like it does all this stuff for me. And he was like, mm, just try out Vim. And so I did and I started with Vim Tutor. And uh, I mean, I was hooked in like 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. It was like the mnemonics make so much sense. Like it's a language for editing text and there's verbs and there's nouns. And like, I get it. And every time I learned like a new thing, it just like fit so nicely into the existing framework. And like, it just felt, I remember being very impressed at how good the design was. Like I felt like the, I was like, I just kept having these moments of like, the people who wrote this are so smart. This makes so much sense. I totally am with, I can be in their minds and understand Mm -hmm. why they chose, you know, D for this and C for that. And I like, it was just, it was a great moment. Yeah. So I I switched from Eclipse to uh, Vim in that during that course, and Mm -hmm. you know, was of course a little bit painful at first, but then pretty quickly was like, okay, this is this is awesome. Right. One of our listeners asked how long it took you to get to Vim mastery, and (laughs) I know what your answer is going to be, so I'm just going to ask the question like that, and then you can answer it how I think you're going to answer. You're using my interview technique. (laughs) Um, It's so I I feel cringy when people call me a Vim master. I feel very cringy. Partly because Vim is one of those things that A, you'll never really master, but B, like I, I work with people here that are clearly more skilled with Vim than I am. I've developed this reputation because I went and talked about it, um, and I've given a couple of Vim-related talks and things like that. And to people that are um, much less experienced, it probably seems like I am a Vim master, but right. like I have nothing but awareness of how little I know in relation to Vim, you know, the entirety of Vim and also even other people that sit next to me on right. a daily basis. Right. Um, but the way I did it was just kind of caring about it. I just, I, I'm a little bit of an efficiency junkie. Uh, I like getting things done with two keystrokes instead of three whenever possible. And so I just sort of always put a little bit of effort in fairly consistently mm-hmm. to learning it. And then I decided to teach, to teach it too. Um, and that was actually my like inroad to speaking. That was my first talk ever was a Vim talk at RailsConf. Right. Um, and so I realized, Hey, I have a lot of specialized knowledge in this thing. So this can kind of be my, the wedge I use to, to pry the door open. Uh, so when I decided to, to teach stuff, I, of course, learned more, as you mm-hmm. always do. Mm-hmm. You did write a blog post, though, that said, uh, give it two weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, um, I did. Was that the Vim learning curve is a myth? Yes. Post? Yeah. Um, I think in the post I said that two weeks is, is when you pass your previous speed. Mm-hmm. I think that's what that is. Um, you can actually be, you can learn enough Vim to get work done. By just running through the Vim Tutor, which takes about twenty minutes, twenty-five minutes. Yeah. Um, 
And then, yes, you are going to be slower for a little bit. But people, I think, drastically overestimate how long that will take. Yeah. So I think it's a, it's about two weeks. And then you're like, okay, yeah, I wouldn't go back. I'm, I'm faster now. There's a line in that blog post that I see come up on Twitter every once in a while because uh, it's very quotable. It's um, the Street Fighter line. Yeah. It's something like, it's something like uh, people say... I could never learn Vim. There are too many keystrokes or too many right. commands. No one ever says, I don't like St- Street Fighter. There are too many combos or right. something. Or like, like I'm that. not going to learn Street Fighter because there are too many combos. <laughs> right. Right. It's like you, you, you start and you, yes, you are, you know, all you know are the rudiments. Like you can punch and you can kick and jump and like you cannot combine them in any interesting ways. But like it doesn't prevent you from playing the game and having right. a good time. And then you slowly gain fluency. So you mentioned speaking. That's how you got into speaking. It was your first. Uh, speaking and you jumped right to the top of the pile at RailsConf. <laughs> it's been mentioned before. Uh, there's an episode with Chad Fowler who was running RailsConf at the time. Yeah, yeah. How you got that? But let's maybe just recap a little bit. Yeah. So, um, I have a like a couple like life uh, viewpoints or lessons, I guess, that come from my dad. So my dad has been in sales for his whole life. So he's sort of specialized in like getting what he wants for pe- from people um, at a high level. And so there's a couple things that he sort of instilled in me. And one of them is going in the front door is kind of like low probability. If you take the path that everyone else is taking, your odds of success tend to be fairly low. But if you can be a little bit creative and step outside that, uh, you can often really raise your odds for success. So when I applied to RailsConf, I I think they even said, like, you know, we get about 120 applications for 40 slots or something Mm -hmm. along those lines. And I had no prior public speaking experience. And so I knew I was sort of fighting, and I had no name recognition or anything like that. So I, I knew I was fighting an uphill battle. And so I, I wrote and recorded the first five minutes of the talk I wanted to give. So I just turned on my webcam and pretended I was giving. I put on a nice shirt and then and put some uh, Vim books in the background and uh, gave the first five minutes of my talk. And then I sent that link to... Um, I didn't know who it was, but it's like hello at railsconf.org or something and said, I would love to give this talk. I know you don't know who I am. So I recorded this so you could see what my speaking style is like. I'm totally fired up. I'm going to do a great job. You know, either way, I'll see you there. Thanks for thinking of me. And um, it was like 30 minutes later, Chad Fowler responded. And I was like, oh, my God, Chad Fowler responded to me (laughs) and uh, forwarded to my parents and whatnot. But he was like, I love the video idea. This is really cool. Thanks for getting in touch. I can't promise anything, but like we'll give your application an extra special look, which is like you know all you can ask for. And to me, it was code for you got this. You know we're fine. We're gonna accept you because you did a good job, and uh, it worked. And then he later wrote a blog post about this experience. And t- to me, it was just all about. It wasn't even that it was particularly hard. It really took me like half an hour. Right. But it was that it, it put me outside of the normal path. It mm-hmm. wasn't or outside the pack. It wasn't just like I was another. I was application forty-five out of one hundred and twenty. Um, I was like the guy that sent in the video. And that's what I'm always recommending to people uh, that I mentor or, or that are new in the Rails world there is like try to find some way to stand out and like be the, the, the guy or the gal that did this, did, did the something. Right. And just give yourself, a, it gives you such a huge edge when you're not just ap- like try to put yourself in the, the shoes of the person who's reading um, all these proposals and has read 10 already and is going to read 10 more before they take a break because their mind is dead. And like, how are you going to stand out from that? from the previous ones. So you've gone all the way from speaking at RailsConf to now you're organizing one of the tracks for this year's conference. Yeah, totally. The live coding track? Yep. Yeah, I'm very psyched about this. Uh, Marty, uh, Marty Hout, Hout, Hot? Hot. Hot. Marty Hot approached me. I, I hope. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Marty is hot, though. Um, he approached me via email, as people do, and said, hey, would you be interested? And I said, absolutely. So... Um, it's interesting because this is this is the opposite of my podcast approach, where now I'm not the talent, I'm the person doing the organization. Mm-hmm. But it felt cool. I've all, I, I'm very critical of conferences, at least in my head and in private. Um, I, I often they often make choices that I you know disagree with, and I'm I'm fairly uh, I set a high bar for speaking quality and ability and all that. And you know I'm I'm always of course nice to people and in public, but in my head sometimes I get a little judgy. And so I thought it was a nice opportunity to try to affect outcome of a conference right and specifically you're doing the live coding track i know that you firmly believe that people should live code during their talk yeah it's not the right format for everything um but i think 
it's it's weird like it's imagine you have a conference of painters and you have a ton of presentations and not a single person does any painting right it's like i mean okay you can still definitely learn stuff and there are some things that wouldn't make sense to show by painting but if you put in a master up on the stage or someone awesome up on stage and everyone just watched them paint, they would probably learn a few things mm-hmm. because there's a lot of it's the, I find the information stream is richer when people are watching each other work um, because it's like as opposed to here's a slide with the finished product on it. It's like, let's get to the finished product. And along the way, you realize, oh, he runs his test from inside the editor. Oh, he has a shell alias for that thing that I do all the time. Oh, he doesn't switch to the console or to his shell to switch git branches or to make a commit he uses mm. this cool vim plugin you just learn a lot of these little things that are process related in there one of the reasons why i hear people say that you should never live code during a talk is mm-hmm. because it can be so error prone yep and i think honestly that's just because of lack of preparation and doing it at the last minute and going in and making a change at the last minute it's for sure harder um, if you want to do less work, definitely do not do live coding. It takes me about 10 times as long to prepare a live coding talk as something if I were going to use slides, for sure, because you have to practice the, the crap out of it mm-hmm. um, to have any sort of confidence. Um, and even, even after those d- tons of practice, I found that when I was giving like my refactoring from good to great talk, it got way better as I gave it a more conference. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you need live practice to really master this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is for sure. If you value your time more than everything else, you know, that's, it's not a good choice, but it's, you can get it very unerror prone by practicing the crap out of it. And also you, it's funny to think one mindset is if I make a single mistake, people will think I'm bad at this and you know, I'm going to, it's going to be awkward and I'll be stuck and frozen. The other way of thinking of it is there are a hundred people there to help you fix any errors. Mm-hmm. So when I did occasionally run into something that I wasn't expecting in my talks that are live coding, I say, what's wrong? And so, and someone always has already seen it. It's mm-hmm. so like you have like you know ninety eight people pairing with you. So it's it's actually a really easy way to rescue yourself from errors is to just ask the audience like, well, how do we fix this? What's going on here? Mm-hmm. So for the live coding talks, you said you do you know ten times more preparation. Uh, what is what does your idea and then preparation process look like? Um, for live coding talks, it all comes down to the examples mm-hmm. and where you can take them. So it's it's I think choosing examples. In ter- for like blog posts and for live coding in particular are like really it's kind of the the, the magic it's the hardest part i think mm-hmm. actually um too simple and it's people can't see how it applies to their real work and they say well of course it works in this scenario but you know it would never be never be valid in the real world and too complicated and people get sort of lost in the details um and it's that's you'll never get it perfect because if it's you know people will always think it's too simple or too complicated no matter but um so I start with I try to find really good examples and start with there. And with the live coding, it's it's really nasty. I try to what I'll try to do is say I'll try to start with some code that I think ha- is looks reasonable but has some problems, and then think about where I can take it. And I'll as I go, I sort of write down the series of steps that I'm doing, mm-hmm. um, and constantly find like oh I got stuck in this thing. You no, know, back up a couple, try a different thing. Oh I got this. This is not very clear. Back up, change the example. Requires a, it's very iterative. It requires a lot of redoing stuff. Mm-hmm. So so on average, how long would you say that you prepare for a talk before giving it for the first time it's weird so like it depends on it the live coding said live coding stuff i said takes way longer than it does Mm -hmm. it's probably um it's probably 25 hours or something of prep something along those lines um from start to finish and that's just for the first iteration which is never or the first time i give it which is never as good as the later times right um for other stuff, it's it's shorter. So uh, the rail the, the talk I did at RailsConf most recently about how to talk to developers um, was sort of a soft talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was g- giving t- tips on speaking that I prepped in about I don't know two or three hours. And you, you gave it a couple times. Like, what does your prep process look like? Um, I give it. I speak it out loud in my hotel room. Right. Basically. Yeah. I, so I work from notes, and mm-hmm. then I just sort of talk from the notes mm-hmm. and and. It's more or less free form. They're, they're, those are there for guidance. But what do I'm, I remember for that one? You had index cards or not? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. I pretty much always print out the talk on just eight and a half. It by was 11. a piece of paper. Okay, it was eight and a half by mm-hmm. eleven sheets. Yeah. And just leave it there on the on the lectern and the podium. Um, so that that one was a, a bit of an anomaly because it was a, a topic that I had thought about so much mm-hmm. and had even started like an ebook on and like was really passionate about. Mm-hmm. So it was like pretty easy to figure out what I wanted to go in mm-hmm. there, and it was mostly about again coming up with good examples. So in that talk, you gave a lot of examples for how to speak well, to mm-hmm. give good good talks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I think by highlighting 
what you think makes a good talk, you also highlighted what you think makes a bad talk. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think combining the concept of preparation with those techniques that you outlined Mm -hmm. is the recipe for how to give a good talk. And when you see oftentimes a talk that was not good, it's because of lack of preparation and a lack of just simple speaking, public speaking practices. Totally. Lack of, yeah, I definitely agree. People seem to, so one of the things I said not to do in my my talk is don't pre-apologize. Mm-hmm. And people love to pre-apologize in particular and say, oh, it's up till two working on these slides. Or like, oh, I hope I get this because I just changed this like five minutes ago. And it's like, well, you are sort of a jerk. Right. Because you have traded my time for your own. Like you've, you're going to make me sit through a talk that is sort of hastily prepared because you didn't, you procrastinated. Right. And that always angers me as an audience member. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you should pre-apologize in general for talks, but that one in particular really just turns, it makes me want to get up and leave. Right. And then the amount of time that is actually required in order to be prepared for the talk, we're not talking weeks and weeks. We're talking run, th- you know, go do it a couple of times in your hotel room, practice in front of maybe a mirror or just, just actually walk through it a couple of times and, and maybe give it to a small group of people that, that you know. Yeah, it totally depends who you are, I think, how mm-hmm. much prep you need and what you're talking about. Um, like the RailsConf talk I wrote the night before mm-hmm. and I think came out really well and people mm-hmm. raved about it. Um, but I knew I could do that for that talk because of right. how long I had been thinking. So people asked me, how long did it take you to make that talk? And I said, well, it took me two hours to write it and three years of giving a dozen conference talks per year to write that talk. Right. So for something that I have a lot of expertise and passion about, it's I can do it, I can get away with less prep. Um, but it... Sometimes it, is, is, sometimes it is a crazy amount of preparation. The live coding stuff takes a long time. And for instance, Katrina Owen, who has done a, a handful mm-hmm. of not mm-hmm. even live coding talks, but sort of uh, live showing talks on a slide, on, a, on, on slides, preps for like inhuman amounts of time, like, hun- like 100 hours. So it's, it depends on who you are and the level of polish and detail you want to get to and, and what you're talking about. So you mentioned that speaking at conferences, um, you know, and, and the work you do there uh, helps you learn. So what else do you do to learn? It's um, programming stuff in particular. Yeah, programming stuff in particular. Yeah. It's I, the best thing I've found. So so the, the very best thing I've found ever for learning programming stuff is to pair with people that are mm-hmm. pair with people, period. Um, people that are better, people that are not quite as good. That, I think, is the, the highest form of learning bandwidth for programming. Beyond that, um, I really like to tackle exercises to give mm-hmm. myself problems to solve and, and try, try to do them uh, like i've been learning closure recently and so i've been on this uh, forclosure.org site uh, that has practice problems um, that come with tests and then you get them once you solve something you can see other people's solutions to it mm-hmm. uh, and i've learned a lot for that and I, i've also noticed like there's this temptation where i do things where i feel like i'm learning but i'm really not it's like i really like to read about closure and i really like to watch talks about it mm-hmm. because they both kind of feel like i'm learning and they both are on topics that i'm interested in mm-hmm. but in fact not a lot of learning is going on like when i sit down at the at the computer that stuff is not very useful not nearly as useful as taking 10 hours to write tic-tac-toe mm-hmm. um so you you've been learning closure i have uh, do you like it i love it it's um it's interesting to work in a new paradigm mm-hmm. so it's functional programming instead of object-oriented programming had you done any functional programming before um no i don't think so Mm. i had um done a little bit of scheme in school but that was about it so we had like a functional programming week i guess in that Mm -hmm. class uh so but this is a is new for me and that's what i love like i'm i'm a bit of a new addict like i i I need to change directions or things every so often um and so being able to step into a new world where like all the oh stuff gets thrown out is like oh cool yeah let's try this yeah one of the listeners asked why there's been nothing on the blog yet about closure. That's a good question. Um, I, I assume by the blog he means our blog. Yeah, yeah. Um, that would probably be okay, right? We could mm-hmm. do that. Yeah. It's weird. It's it. Ruby is such the thought is the the lingua franca of thoughtbot that it like it feels, uh, almost weird to bring in closure. Yeah. Uh, but I but. I guess I haven't really gotten any pushback from anybody. Like everyone's kind of down with no. I think learning and- I think it'd be good if there's any reason why it probably feels weird it's because we're not doing professional work in it yeah and that's you know almost everything that is on the blog even if it's somewhat academic comes from something that we hit upon or discovered in our work yeah 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's an interesting idea. Uh, I, I definitely learn a lot by writing blog posts on things. Mm-hmm. So I think I could, I could add that to my queue. And we often say that, uh, you know, people say, we, we say, start a blog. If you're learning, start a blog. It's a great way to build reputation and, and just learn. Mm-hmm. And people say, oh, well, but, but I just learned this. It's, you know, and we tell them, doesn't matter. Yeah. Someone's one week behind you. Exactly. Yeah. I have, this, I have this secret plan. I'll disclose my secret plan here. Yes. Um, my secret plan is to make it so that we can use Clojure professionally someday. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are some things about functional programming and Clojure in particular that solve pain points that we've had in, in the object-oriented world. And I think it may actually be the future. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of want to sneak it in here somehow. And so I think maybe blogging is probably a good way to add it to that list. Yeah. I mean, I often, I say it all the time that, you know, we were very fortunate to enjoy Ruby, enjoy Rails, switch to it very early on mm-hmm. and have it then become very popular. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to miss the next thing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if that next thing is closure, you know, so be it. Um and that, by the way, is a great part about being here is that there's in everything, not even just programming language choice, I feel like we have a pretty healthy willingness to try new things and mm-hmm. to change. And I really I like that a lot as someone that's sort of addicted to change. There's, not, there's very little pushback like, well, this is how we do it now. And so that's how we do it. Right. And when I hear that, I try to <laughs> get, it, get rid of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, uh, I, well, I, I, have, I don't know how secret this is, but I've, I've said that I think this year we will do one major project that is not ruby mm. i don't know what it will be mm-hmm. um but it wouldn't surprise me if it's not ruby yeah cool um, and hopefully you know, and that will be because we're choosing it for the right reasons not just to use something new yeah it's it's interesting that balancing act that i was talking to joe about this where you have to kind of always be trying new things but you also have to balance that against like we charge for our time. Right. And, and so, not only do we charge for our time, but we charge as expert. Like we've gotten ourselves into a position where when people work with ThoughtBot, they expect expertise. For sure. Uh, yeah. And so you have to try the new things so you don't miss out on the next thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, it's a little bit of a business challenge to figure out how do you, how much do you charge for it and, and all that. And we can't, because we can't promise like we think Clojure is the right choice and we can promise it's going to be awesome and high quality. Like we might get into it and feel it and realize it's not. Yeah. So it's, it's a little bit of a tricky situation. And languages are different than, you know, it was very easy for us to say, we think MongoDB is the right solution for this. It's a new technology, but you know, we're going to, we're going to do it. And without that expertise in MongoDB previously, mm-hmm. it, there's a whole nother level when it be, when it involves the la- the actual language that your application is programming. And that, also means the frameworks and mm-hmm. and everything. And that's a good example, by the way, because MongoDB turned out to be a terrible choice, and no one right. should use it ever. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mongo people. <laughs> I mean that mostly facetiously. Mostly, no, I, like everything, you know, most technical things, they have their place. Mm-hmm. That's why when we finally do use something besides Ruby or Rails, we want to look back on it and say that was the right decision or we at least made the decision thinking it was the right one. Oh, yeah, Not sure. just because we wanted to try something new, but because we thought it was the right technical choice. Mm-hmm. So you're reading a book on closure. I see, I've see. i seen it on your desk. Mm-hmm. Um, what other things are you doing to learn and how much time are you spending doing, doing that? I, I Like I said, I'm falling a little bit into the... the uh, edutainment trap. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been reading that. That book is my like third closure book, um, and I'm spending a decent amount of time on it, um, but less time actually writing code. Uh, and so I, I think I need to course correct on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I st- I, I, read, I, I read and watched fairly liberally, um, and then started to go write tic tac toe, which is a pretty, you know, uh, playing tic tac toe against an AI opponent. Uh, and even just getting like, how do I represent the board? How do I like detect when the board is in a winning condition? How do I make moves? Things like that. Like all the simple questions like took me a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And so um, I need to t- t- totally flip what I'm doing where like a little bit of code and a lot of reading needs to be uh, the opposite of that mm-hmm. for sure. There's just no no comparison with like trying to get stuff done. Even if it seems a little intimidating, like I, starting a web app uh, sounds a little bit like, wow, I kind of have no idea, no idea where to start, but like, I'm just going to kind of go into it anyway, because that's when you, you really do a lot of learning. It strikes me that you're very into self-improvement hmm. and being better, mm-hmm. not only in the work you do, but, you know, sort of in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you were talking at lunch the other day about this fitness thing you're doing or this health thing that you're going to be doing. Oh, yeah. And that, you know, it seems along those same lines. So for those who weren't at lunch with us. <laughs> There's only a few people that weren't at lunch with us, but just for those people, I'll explain it. So I, I uh, purchased this thing through a company called Wellness FX, uh, where you go to their site and then they give you a lab order and you go get your blood drawn. And then they basically run a, a battery of tests on it. And then the test results get sent to Wellness FX and they feed them into a nice looking web app. Um, and then for all those things, they tell you like, okay, your whatever level is here. It really should be here and, and whatnot. And uh, it, I also purchased like a consult with a nutritionist. So like mm-hmm. they sort of help you interpret the results. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of just like an interesting way to get some data points on like where your body is at that you can't necessarily guess. Um, and like I've, I've heard there's interesting stories like someone like I didn't realize my like I was not getting nearly enough vitamin E and so I like took a ton of it for a while and now I feel like a new person and like mm-hmm. it's intriguing to me to like I wonder if I have like some weird thing that like I have a, a major mineral deficiency and I have no idea and if I just started taking zinc I would program two times as fast and switch to Emacs or something so is it about fixing problems or is it about just becoming better um or maybe both it's, I guess it's both. For me, for, for this thing in particular, it's, it's, I'm mostly worried about something that's really wrong. Okay. Like, I, I think I, I, I eat decently well. I, I get a decent amount of exercise, but maybe I'm totally wrong on those evaluations. And in mm-hmm. fact, I eat terribly and need way more exercise. And these numbers will make that clear. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather, it's sort of just an early detection system to me right now mm-hmm. before something bad happens and I blow up in some way. Mm-hmm. You, did, um, you did a lot of traveling last year for both conferences and, um, I guess pleasure. Yeah, um, you like to travel, right? It's really funny. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm single, and so I go on OkCupid, and I look at people's profiles, and there's like, if there's one common word that spans every single profile, it's like travel. It's like this love mm-hmm. of travel. Apparently, it's like the cool thing to say. You like traveling? Even- isn't isn't it like? Studies show that that's what you should say in your dating profile or something. Probably. Like that. I mean, it's. I think everyone thinks that it, in fact, it conveys no information because everyone says it. Right. So it makes it conveys nothing. But I, I think I'm going to actually be the first person on OkCupid to say I'm sick of traveling. Right. Uh, so like last year, I, I just burnt myself out a little bit too mm-hmm. much. I had some things where I would like be in Europe and then back. And then two weeks later, I'm like back in Europe somewhere else. And um, it was amazing for a while. Uh, and the, the fact that I could do this on like while doing conference speaking was awesome. And um I really enjoyed the he- the heck out of it for a while. And then just kind of solo travel in particular, like solo international travel on long haul flights. Like just, I- I'm super extroverted. And so like being mm-hmm. alone for like nine days or eight days just like got to, re- sort of to get to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I realized I wasn't having fun doing it anymore. So I basically sort of canceled the next couple of appearances I had and then have been turning things down recently. Uh, and so I, I think I will return to the circuit uh, eventually because I really enjoy it. Um, but I need to do it in a sustainable way. So what you need to do is keep it in your OkCupid okay profile that yeah. you love to travel. Yeah. And then become not single. And then you'll have someone to travel that's, with. That's kind of the plan, actually. That's the secret plan. Is like, if I'm traveling with people, I'm totally happy. It doesn't even have to be like a significant other. Just even mm-hmm. a friend makes it like, to, to me, 10 times as good. Um, but like, I, I, think, I think the thing that really did it for me was like 10 days in Australia mm-hmm. after like a massive flight. And, like, it was really amazing and fulfilling and interesting. But, like, I just got to the point where I was, like, basically depressed on vacation. <laughs> and I was, like, something is wrong here. I was, like, I don't even want to leave my hotel in, and I'm in Sydney. And, like, this is silly. So mm-hmm. I need to figure out what's going on. So is that why you have roommates? Yeah, actually. Yeah, it is. I, empty houses do not appeal to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I get, I get the, why some people want that, but it's not my style. Mm-hmm. Except you want your own hotel room uh that is true yeah that's true we had a trip scheduled where you and i were supposed to room together yeah. and i got to the hotel i was just like no i, I want my own room damn it mm-hmm. i'm an adult and i want it or something yeah um yeah i don't know just well it's funny because i was feeling the same way so on the flight there i was like you know we don't need to stay in the same room it's yeah. fine yeah and then i we i landed you had gotten there a little bit before me and there was an email from you saying i got my own room <laughs> and you were like cool <laughs> yeah yeah, and to, to me, it's like, yeah, hotel rooms are small. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's like you're sharing a bedroom it's, mm-hmm. it's, as opposed to, like, sharing an apartment where you have your own private space. Very intimate. It's very intimate. And, like, it's like I'm sharing a hotel room with my boss for, like, three days. I was like, I'm just going to, you know, 
not do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad I did. It's very fun to stay in a hotel room with me, Ben. I'm You're sure it out. is. It's, it's nothing personal. <laughs> no, and I knew that. And because I was feeling similarly, it, mm-hmm. it, it, all, it all worked out. And I think that that separation between work and life and uh, being alone and with people, like, you know, it seems like to me, like you, you mentioned, I'm an ex, you, you know, you state these things about yourself. It seems like you have an understanding about who you are. Mm. Um, and you're not afraid to sort of live that. Mm. Yeah, and hopefully I'm right about right. these things. And when you're wrong, you adjust, right? I yeah, mean, you I travel so. a bunch, and then you got tired of it, and now you're yeah, not. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think it's... The, the reason I say that is because I think uh, self-awareness is the hardest kind of awareness. Mm. Like, it's easiest to accidentally... To have have blind spots around yourself. Um, and so I, I state these things, but I also try to have a healthy dose of like is that definitely true and i should check that against real world data mm-hmm. so what do you wish that i had asked <laughs> that uh um, i haven't asked hmm what do you want your legacy to be oh god <laughs> you're stealing my questions <laughs> my legacy i don't know if i i don't i don't know if i care if i have a legacy yeah i kind of want to do good and interesting things and um have great friends and love and all that around me and I don't necessarily care if I don't change the world in an extremely lasting way. Mm-hmm. I think that's okay. I think I'd be all right with that. As long as I've sort of enjoyed what I've done here and gener- generally made the, the immediate space around me better, like for my coworkers and for my friends and all that. Mm-hmm. I think that's okay. I'm down with that. We'll see if that changes over time. Yeah, it could be. Is there anything that you wish I had asked um... that you wanted to talk about? You know, I I have kind of been sneaking in barbershop references to oh yeah, actually it's right here. Podcast. I just can't read my hand my handwriting. <laughs> right, slanging. So yeah, so you sing. I do. You are in a you run a barbershop quartet that you are also in, right? Um, I'm in the so the quartet is sort of egalitarian. Uh, okay, it's it's equal, but I I'm the assistant director of a chorus. Mm-hmm. Um. Which is, it's interesting. So I, I thought we might segue there from the speaking because mm-hmm. my being, so as an assistant director, you're in front of the chorus a lot. So I'm in front of like 50 people week to week and, you know, sort of leading them through things. And so it's been amazing to me how much the speaking has helped make my job as an assistant director better and vice versa. Now, do you, are you just assistant director and that means you don't sing in the chorus or you also sing? In the I, I also sing. Mm-hmm. So I sing when I'm not directing, basically. Right. There's a frontline director and he directs the majority of the things and so mm-hmm. i contribute vocally when i'm how long have you been singing for a long time um i grew up in like a singing household mm-hmm. uh, it's like so my mom's singing salesman uh no actually not my dad so my dad didn't my mom grew up with um my, my grandfather is also a barbershopper as they're known uh, and so she grew up in a household where they sang from ch- as children and so i grew up in a household where we started singing as children and like acapella christmas carols kind of thing and just like a lot of singing in my life so i joined my first chorus at like six or something mm-hmm. and have basically been do in getting some sort of chorus or vocal instruction since then more mm-hmm. or less so you've taken actual vocal instruction classes yep yep a handful um which is and it's, it's interesting to me so there's this weird thing about singing where people think they're terrible at it, or, or they think they should be good at it naturally mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's weird because no one if you were like a cello player and had been taking cello lessons all your life and someone heard you and said wow you're amazing and then they said i could never do that right you'd be like well yeah you could you know you'd like no no i tried and i'm terrible well like how many lessons did you take well i took none i just started trying to do it and i didn't i wasn't good at it and you're like well that's pretty stupid sounding <laughs> but this happens with singing all the time mm-hmm. and I, i'm not quite sure why i think because people assume you should naturally be good at singing Oh, it's something natural in our body. Like, right, so exactly. Just, you should just know how to use it, right. just like everything else. But in fact, there's quite a... I mean, uh, there's people get PhDs in vocal performance. Mm-hmm. It's There's quite a bit of knowledge to get. And I have been getting it for a long, long time. And mm-hmm. so people are like, oh, you're a great singer, but I could never do that. I'm like, well, if you had lived the life I've lived, you would also have this level of skill at 30. Um, and so I've always, I, I always do just ask people, like, oh, I could never do that. I'm like, oh, like, uh, when was your last lesson? like well never it's like oh well like i think i know why you're not very good at it (laughs) no one that has ever showed you how right and it's the thing that you actually do need to be shown how and like programming a chorus is a great way to this is sort of like the singing hack because if you get in a decent chorus Mm. (laughs) 
especially one you know it doesn't it, there are good choruses that you don't need to apply, you know audition for mm-hmm. you know decent choruses mm-hmm. you get in and you're going to be surrounded by people you're going to you're going to be able to sing in a group and it's going to sound amazingly good to you mm-hmm. but then you'll learn to read music faster um get better at the singing the songs that you're singing which then makes it easier to sing the next song where the director hands out the new song um so that's like a hack so like if you're there's a life hack (laughs) for singing (laughs) (laughs) is you can do it in the same way that you can do programming you can get started with it and then surround yourself with it and get better by actually doing it oh yeah absolutely and and our 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 chorus so barbershop is a decidedly amateur hobby Mm. like it's we it's very welcoming to people that have never had formal training in it so I was a bit of an anomaly coming into this, having done so much singing in, in, in more formal settings and had formal voice lessons. Um, but we take people, we take all the time people that are fairly raw and teach them uh, how to do it. Uh, and like I'll actually teach like one-on-one voice lessons. I'll pull guys out of the chorus and like take them out into a room and like just do a quick like thirty-minute session with them. And we also teach a lot as they're on the risers uh, and just sort of you like that life hack applies to most things. If you go. If you want to learn to do a thing and you go to a place where a bunch of other people are doing a thing, some of which are better than you, you're going to learn to do that thing faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, we do audition people, but we take very much into account their potential. And we realize that when people do enter the chorus and come regularly, they learn a lot and they become better over time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting to me, just going back for one second to this like, idea of people not learning to sing, where there's so many people that have had a, 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 a scarring experience at an early age when it comes to singing. So, like, I have a lot of guys that come into the chorus, and when they were 10, they had a school assembly, and they were supposed to sing some song, and the teacher told them, you're not good, like, don't sing, like, just mouth the words. Or, like, a parent heard them when they were seven in the car and said, Mm -hmm. you're not good. And there's something about vocal criticism that people Mm -hmm. take, and it sticks with them forever. Mm -hmm. And so I have these, like, 55-year-old guys that when they were 10 years old were told they couldn't sing. And so for 45 years, they didn't. And they believed that and they carried that around. And they come to my course. And I'm like, well, when was your last voice lesson? And they're like, well, never. And so we start teaching them how to sing. And, they, and what happens is eventually they decide, I don't care about this stupid thing that I've been carrying around. I want to sing and so I'm going to try it. And they realize they can and they can learn it. But there's something about singing where so many people got damaged early on. And they just held that for so long and believed it is true. And so there's this great saying, my mom's a therapist, and one of her favorite things is, don't believe everything you think, which I really like. You got to question those things. Like, you might be carrying around that or something similar, and just because you've thought it for a long time does not mean it's true. Well, I think that about does it. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Uh, if you... Uh... <laughs> you got it if you'd like to I, access you, see you have notes and i don't have notes well, no. if you'd like to access the show notes for this episode you can go to podcast.thoughtbot.com slash giant robots slash 83 uh you can follow ben at r00k on twitter and uh, of course follow thoughtbot on twitter and if you like this episode we really appreciate it if you go to itunes and rate it uh, it really helps us find new listeners for the show And uh, thank you very much for listening.